1: Mr. Show No Worries, we've got you covered on Point and on the podcast. You think Joe Biden's better for this country than Donald Trump? Guess again. Since becoming president, he's been signing protection measures, fast and furious, that will hurt this country's bottom line. Doctors are warning that mental health issues are creating a secondary pandemic thanks to this lockdown. But unlike the pandemic of COVID that will disappear, these mental health issues will be felt for decades And what happened to that iron ring, our most vulnerable were promised? Well, non-existent. And the new COVID variant is here. It's spreading. And we still clearly cannot protect the most vulnerable. Let's get talking.
2: What's your point? Am I getting through to you? Answer the
0: point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough.
3: Here's Alex Pearson
0: on Global News
3: Radio. Listening. We are very confident that not only will we reach our target of vaccinating all Canadians who want it by September, but we are very much on track to receiving the six million doses we committed uh, to Canadians. We'd be getting uh, by the end of March, exactly on schedule.
1: Justin Trudeau talks a very good game but until vaccines actually show up in Canada that is all that this is is talk Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday January 26 hope you had a great day as we wake up to a nice snowy Tuesday weather folks we're getting it right today we got a mountain of new snow nonetheless we're all locked down so it's not so painful most of us anyway but uh sure does look like we're getting a snow job when it comes to vaccines. um, And that Canada might be iced out of vaccine supply and heading into a vaccine war with Europe. And this is a war we can't win. We will not win. because Simply put, we don't have vaccines to make. And that's because the Trudeau government didn't bother to make the investments into vaccine production over the past year, and the European Union did. And now with a shortage at hand... This morning, we wake up to news that the European Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, is warning that if they can't get AstraZeneca deliveries, then they may have to stop other vaccine exports to this country and others. Europe invested billions to help develop the world's first COVID-19
0: vaccines to create a truly global common good. And now the companies must deliver. They must honor their obligations. And this is why we will set up a vaccine export transparency mechanism. Europe is determined
1: to contribute to this global common good. But it also means business. Indeed, it is business. Sure, it's a global health crisis. But when it comes to vaccines, money talks. And the European Union did everything the Trudeau government failed to do, which is they bought vaccines early. Then they invested billions to create them, and then they also produced their own. And because they did all that, they want what they ordered to be delivered on time. Who can blame them? And that goes, you know, meaning whether or not countries like Canada are pushed out of the way. And this is all happening because AstraZeneca, which the European Union is expecting millions of doses from, uh, can't keep up with demand. And if the European Union can't get AstraZeneca deliveries, then the the EU-produced Pfizer vaccine could be its next target because Pfizer's made in Belgium, which means they can, and likely will block other countries from taking supply by implementing a trade ban on European-made vaccines.
2: Can you say definitively that our contracts with the vaccine manufacturers protect us? From the European protectionism?
3: Uh, I'm happy to correct you on that one, Marika. I spoke to the CEO of Moderna about an hour and a half ago. So uh, the topic of uh, their recent musings by Europe certainly came up. Uh, and uh, it was very, very clear that the Canadian uh, contracts that have been signed and the delivery schedule laid out will be respected.
1: Look, Trudeau can talk to the pharma presidents all he likes, and it's nice to see he finally decided to pick up the phone and make a few calls. But it's not up to Moderna or Pfizer as to what leaves Europe, because export policy is and will be decided by the European Union. And so they're saying vaccines won't get shipped to the world. Period. If they don't get theirs. It's not like they owe us anything. It's not their fault Canada didn't get in and buy early. It's also not their problem that Trudeau didn't and hasn't been bothered to invest in our own vaccine production. He's had months to do that and hasn't done it. And certainly it's not their job to make sure he can deliver his extremely large portfolio. Which, by the way, when you look at the big portfolio, 70% of this amazing portfolio that we hear about is reliant on vaccine approval that still many of them have not been approved. And there's no guarantee that they'll be improved. So I'm glad he thinks we're getting vaccinated by September. I certainly hope he's right. But unless we get guarantees of actual delivery dates, it's a hollow promise because Trudeau can't guarantee there will be no more disruptions. This is a second hiccup with Pfizer um, that we've heard. We've heard about the uh, second hiccup. We heard on Friday that the Pfizer announced it was going to be stopping shipments to our country and then reducing shipments moving forward. And even if AstraZeneca and the Johnson Johnson vaccine are approved by Health Canada, and we're still waiting, we're still going to be reliant on other countries to produce and ship them, which means there are further risks that those producing countries might also hoard the supplies. And, you know, other countries have made their vaccine agreements public. But when it comes to Canada, there's been zero transparency on what the Trudeau government negotiated for a vaccine. So we have absolutely no way of knowing anything about the fine print. And getting vaccinated by September, I don't know why everyone's so excited about that. That's nothing to celebrate. I mean, we're limping over the finish line. We are now 28th in the world. We're behind Malta. How'd that happen? I mean, we didn't use the last few months. Why we would not, you know, speed up this process to get our own production. We have private companies that can produce these vaccines. And Trudeau chose not to invest in upgrades to produce here. And why we didn't sign a deal with the United States, that's beyond me. But I think he needs to come clean. Not just so we can all measure our expectations, but because we deserve to know how long we're going to live in this misery, which could be for a very long time. Because now... The UK variant is not just a threat, it's actually here. I don't know if you heard the de- numbers from today, but Simcoe, Muskoka regions reporting 99 new cases of this new UK variant in the community. And we've had so much warning about this. And once again, we're caught flat-footed. You got the Trudeau government thinking about new travel restrictions. Maybe we'll do something with, you know, um, quarantines. But thoughts are all we get, and he was pushed on this several times today during the press conference. What are you waiting for?
3: One of the things to remember is that Canada already has some of the strongest travel restrictions in the world. As of last March, non-Canadians, non-permanent residents, aren't allowed to travel to Canada. There is a travel ban for all foreign travelers.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a load of BS. That is absolute nonsense. We got Swiss cheese travel bans here. Non-existent testing. We've got limp quarantine rules, which, you know, again and again, we are showing up late to the game. We have no vaccines, and now we've got this new, more dangerous COVID threat that's taking hold, and all we get is talk and no action. I spoke with that doctor last night from South Africa, and he's warning, if this new variant gets hold, we will see numbers that we have not seen before. By March, we will see such a severe upswing. They're calling it a disaster. So I'm not sure why we're thinking about travel bans. I don't know why we're thinking about quarantine rules. These are things that should have been done months ago. And so I think it's time to put the talk into action because clearly, clearly the virus is not waiting for our experts to get their crap together. Still trying to figure out where this iron ring is. Where is it? We were told it would be put in place to protect our most elderly, and um, yet you know, we just every day keep hearing more and more horror stories. You know, we've got the residents in that very long term care facility um, sickened. Two hundred people in that building are sick, both residents and staff, and it's believed that uh, most of those cases are the UK variant, which has ripped through the facility. S- Forty-five people have have died. Now we learned from an inspection report um, done a little a few days ago that healthy residents were actually kept in the same room as those infected. It found that staff were treating both sick and healthy, exposing them to the virus, and that those who are supposed to be isolated with COVID-19 were found walking around. It also notes in this report that over the 36, past 36 months, inspectors had issued to, uh, to Roberta Place, which is this Barry home, It had 12 previous compliance orders, 30 voluntary plans of correction, and 15 formal written notices of other rule violations. And um, if you think it's just happening there, it is not. Laura Tamlin-Watts joining us now, CEO of CanAge. Good to have you. Thank you. So it's not bad enough that we hear, you know, 200 people, um, many of those elderly residents living in this home are sick. Many, many have died. And then we hear of this kind of inspection Um, You know, this isn't just cruel, it's inhumane.
2: And it's not news, but it is still shocking that it's happening. And I mean, it goes, I think, really to the core of the problem, which is we say what the issues are. In some cases, we have inspections which underscore the issues, but that help doesn't come. And we are right now losing... Our seniors every single day that we wait to get the services in there that they need.
1: Yeah and it's pretty clear that these these homes in Barrie got overwhelmed very very quickly but then the question becomes why didn't the province pull in either uh, the military or why why won't the home take help? And so what we've seen is that homes have been trying to reach
2: out quite often But there is this lag time in process between when they say, look, Amber alert, we're getting overwhelmed, it's moving very quickly, we need help, and when... Actually, the government moves to get the help in place. In some cases, they send in an inspection, there's a review, there's a negotiation of a contract. Will it be the Red Cross or acute care? And in some cases, we're seeing this is taking sort of one to two weeks of time. Mm -hmm. And if we're looking at the death toll mounting, that type of lag is unconscionable We look, for instance, at New Brunswick, which put together rapid response teams so that homes that were in distress would be able to call and help would show up right away. Why have we not done that in Ontario? Well,
1: it's a good question. The Prime Minister said last week that he has offered military help, and and to my knowledge, unless something has changed, the Premier um, said he'd be open to that help but didn't do anything with it. Is that because the Red Cross was brought in to help?
2: We know that there have been federal offers to help with money and resources on the table and that the Ontario government has not taken up that help. Why? I cannot possibly imagine. In some cases, Red Cross have been able to come in, but we have to think about what the skill sets are that are being brought in we need doctors and nurses and people with medical training as well as people to help with some administration and supports and when we're getting red cross in we're getting people who may have some medical training but not the type of medical training that the military has been providing all of this to say we need urgent help, all hands on deck, as particularly this UK virus mm-hmm. is going rapidly through homes. The Barry Home is not the only one.
1: No, I, and I suspect the community spread is probably much worse than we are being told, which then speaks to the federal government. What the hell are they waiting for? I don't know why we are always so um, you know, reactive to things that we have plenty of warning is coming our way, and then we just wait and don't do anything and let it come in. We
2: know that the combination of community spread and long-term care spread are directly related to each other. And not to take away from the clear urgency to vaccinate older people in Mm long-term care, which is without without question, but we also need to make sure that we are vaccinating the 92% of other older adults who are at home, many of whom have the same degree of fragility and frailty and care needs that are in long-term care. And this government has been nowhere in communicating how they're going to roll the vaccines out. And so the combination of long-term care community spread and people at home community spread is critical as well. It's a whole problem that requires vaccination solutions, and we have very good vaccination ability, but we're using this sort of military new strategy when actually we successfully vaccinate, even in Ontario, 5.5 million people in the fall for flu. We know Mm -hmm. that pharmacists, doctors, nurses are ready to go, and they have no information about how they can help with the vaccination process.
1: Well, I mean, one thing we need is vaccines and I get the sense that there is no actual scheduled delivery and that's why there's such a guessing game going on, but it is going to cost lives that we were told would be protected. And so what are we looking at as far as, um, Laura, the situation at other, you know, long-term care homes? I know that an outbreak is one case in a home, but how many others are just like the home in Barrie that we're talking about? We
2: know that the UK variant is at least in one more home and suspected in at least one other. I think we'll see that information coming out day by day. We know as well that existing homes are still having other regular spread, which is Mm -hmm. still decimating people. We are losing one older person in long-term care per hour in this country to COVID-19. This needs to be a 24-7, all-hands-on-deck approach, and that's nowhere near what we're doing.
1: Well, no, it's very clear that people are going into these homes and and why we are still allowing um, workers to go home-to-home. I don't know if that's the case in, in this Barry home, but that is still happening at some homes, as I understand. That should not be happening. That should have stopped months ago. Um, but there are a lot of things that we learned in the first wave that are still happening now, and I don't understand why. I don't understand why. It, it is so much worse now than it was the first time around.
2: You in... Hamilton, there was a detailed report, bit of a whistleblower report by staff members that were detailing exactly how terrible it was in that home, including not having access to basic personal protective equipment even now, even though we know we can get PPE, and that we are seeing kind of the violations ramp up. And so the solution is not really to point fingers at this point. The solution is to get the care to the people who need it first, but to also rapidly respond to make sure that the lessons we've learned in the first wave are implemented in the second wave. Let's start with making sure that sick people are kept away from people who are not sick and that we don't have staff going between them. You know, it is, unconscionable that in some cases staff members are being given a choice. Either go between these two different cohorts or don't provide care at all. The problem there is a structural problem. It's not well-meaning staff. It's the fact that we don't have enough staff to begin with.
1: Again, things that could have been uh, shored up over the um, summer when we had those uh, cases dipping down and, and bought us some time to get ready. Uh, this is not a partisan issue. It should not be a partisan issue. We have failed an entire generation of people who are um, the most vulnerable and who deserve far, far greater, um, if not just an act of kindness than what they're getting now. We'll continue to follow this, and I thank you for joining us. I know you're very busy these days. Thank you for having me. Laura Tamblyn Watts joining us, CEO of CanAge. And if it's not, you know, for people like her um, or yourself as a parent or a, a child of a parent, I mean, you're the advocate. You're the only voice your loved one has in those homes. So don't let your voice be extinguished. It is my one giant regret with my stepfather is not speaking up when I thought things were questionable. And I damn well should have. It's unacceptable that this is still going on. You know, we hear the phrase a lot. It's a cliched phrase about the cost being more expensive than the cure. But it is an actual real question that those in charge have to start asking themselves. Because if we're going to remain locked down, and we don't know how long that's going to be, we know it's an extra two weeks now, but we all know it's going to be longer, then we deserve some honesty. Those in charge have got to start managing our expectations. Because lockdown measures may flatten the curve eventually, but it's also causing a huge amount of collateral damage that shouldn't be happening. And according to those who work in areas of mental health, and we've been hearing this now for some time, they're starting to witness an unprecedented crisis, be it the cases of anxiety they're seeing, depression, increased suicides. And if this is what we are seeing now, what happens months from now or when the dust of this thing settles and we start to see the true and calculate the true damages people have gone through? What's it going to look like then? Are those in charge, all these experts that we listen to, are they creating a secondary pandemic while dealing with the current one? Dr. Mark Berber is a psychiatrist at Markham Stoweville Hospital, also a professor at the University of Toronto and Queen's University, and I thank you for joining us. Thanks, Alex. If you can, characterize some of the things that you are seeing that are, are, would be considered you know, unusual or, or even shock you.
0: Well, I think what's happening since Christmas is that my patients and many of my colleagues' patients are becoming more impacted by the coronavirus and, in particular, the lockdowns. Before Christmas, people were willing to go along with things, especially during the spring. The government and, indeed, people didn't know what to expect. But as we've come to know more about the virus and who, who, in fact, are dying and the risks more to the elderly and those in nursing homes, and not to the young, not to the teenagers. I think uh, my patients are becoming more and more frustrated by everything.
1: And and, and you're not alone in um, in seeing the, the increased um, costs of this pandemic, but are these the kind of issues that will go away once the stress of the pandemic is over?
0: Well, unfortunately, it's going to only get worse because what's happening now are we have government subsidies camouflaging the real issues. So a lot of people... And my patients included, are happy enough to get the $2,000 a month, and they won't be happy when those financial subsidies go away. And unfortunately, I have a lot of teenagers who, in fact, were ready to go back to work to their essential jobs, whether it was in Costco or Walmart, and they just told me, I don't need to go back to work, Dr. Berber. I'm getting my $2,000 a month, so I'll stay at home. So I think all these um, checks for many people have caused a lot of problems and then I have a lot of patients who are business owners who own for example hairdressing salons restaurants small businesses and they feel that it's very unfair that they are being singled out while the public in general can just wander in and out of Walmart Costco the LCBO the weed store the pharmacies and yet they cannot come in in small numbers to their for example um jewelry stores or small shoe stores so my business owners feel very, very mistreated.
1: Yeah, no doubt no doubt about that. There seems to be a real double standard, and we seem to be um, uh, comfortable now, and I think this is what bothers me probably the most, is how comfortable we seem to have become to picking winners and losers and being okay that the losers are losing, even though none of it might be ba- based on, on data uh, to back up the measures being taken.
0: I think we, in Canada, in general, are very good at looking after the poor But unfortunately, COVID-19 itself has been very hard on the more unfortunate people. And also the lockdowns themselves are more harsh on the poor people. So, for example, if you're a professional white-collar worker able to work at home and have your kids tutored and play in the backyard, you'll have a much nicer time with lockdown than if you're a person living in a small condo in a very small area downtown with three kids at home trying to make ends meet when you, you can't cope. So... The whole idea of lockdown has exacerbated everything for many, many of my patients.
1: And not to mention the, the whole issue of lockdowns has become very political, and especially within the, the medical community. You've got those like yourself who will actually speak out about um, the, the concerns that you have. But there are a lot of people who are very much for them uh, in the medical community. So there's a real divide on, on what measures to use and, and um, you know, how we can justify those. But without question, I'm not sure when we put this thing behind us, God help us, we can put this thing behind us, how we're going to justify the decades of um, destruction we have caused to a, a whole lot of people who, I mean, once this ends... The anxiety and depression, uh, certainly the eating disorders, the alcoholism, that just doesn't leave. That doesn't go away. That's now a lifelong problem.
0: Well, I've been a physician for over 40 years, and I've never seen politics interfere with medicine as they have today. For example, I just heard the news before I came on with you, and they were talking about a wartime comparison. But if we Mm -hmm. think about the Hong Kong flu in 1968, that killed one to four million people. And there were no lockdowns we didn't lock lock up and lock down healthy people. We must remember also that these cases that we keep reporting every day are really fanning the flames of fear. People are really fearful that these cases are in fact infectious people when nothing could be further from the truth. So I think it's very important that if we go further, that we need to be more transparent with the population, with the public, because if they are going to keep supporting what's going on, I think it's fair that they get more um, transparent information like how, who is dying? Are they all over mm-hmm. 82? Are they all dying in uh, long term homes? Uh, do they have comorbid conditions? I think it's time that we now started to do more than just say we had 10,000 cases. You know, we've got to do more for the public in terms of educating them.
1: And certainly, um, you know, we've talked about children, you know, they're out of school. They're going to be out of school, I think, for some time. I don't know when um, those in charge are going to actually admit that the year is lost again. But there's going to be a real consequence for these young uh, kids as well being out of school.
0: The children are being petrified. I was listening to the news last week and I heard that Quebec teachers wanted to all wear black and go into the (laughs) classrooms in Quebec and make the children fearful that they, by coming to school, the kids, are actually killing their parents. How more ridiculous and more cruel can we be to our children? It's unfathomable.
1: The WHO has said, um, you know, that lockdowns can't be used as a strategy. It has to be a very focused and very short term um, shut down to, to kind of a reset. And we seem to be using um, lockdowns now as a strategy. And I, I don't get the sense that we're getting out of this thing in two weeks, three weeks, maybe not even six weeks. And I think people would uh, prefer to have their man- your expectations managed so that maybe uh, it would give a little bit more stability in a very unstable time. And we just don't get that.
0: Well, folks keep saying, listen to the science. The two major articles that were published in The Science, one was a a leading Canadian author published in The Lancet, um, Dr Chowdhury. She concluded that lockdowns did not affect mortality from COVID-19. And the more recent one, just published this month in the European Journal of Clinical Investigation, similarly said, this was the conclusion, that business closures and stay-at-home orders do not reduce mortality from COVID-19. So if we really want to follow the science, we've got to follow the science. But that does not seem to be the case.
1: No, it does not. We have too many competing interests at this point, but you know, and you will know well, uh, we didn't have resources for mental health illnesses before this pandemic. Um, What does it look like after the pandemic? Do we get this shadow pandemic of mental health? Because I know that the Ford government has announced a lot of money But I don't think it's turned into the tangible kind of supports we need for mental health illness. And and frankly, I'm not sure. And maybe you can uh, point me in the right direction on this. Do we yet know the data of what we're going to be looking at after this thing when it comes to mental health um, issues?
0: Well, before I answer the question, I must give um, a call out to the government of Canada because they have been very supportive of psychiatrists and um, mental health care workers in terms of, of helping us. Um, do our work so thanks Mm -hmm. to them we've been able to do this but going forward uh, um, the problem will now be the impact of unemployment, business closures and that sort of thing because there is a very very tight relationship between unemployment and suicide in this through previous recessions and what's going to make it worse this time compared to the recessions earlier um, if we continue lockdowns will be the social isolation so it's very important as we go forward, we stop the lockdowns so that people can interact normally as before, because they're going to need that buffer when they, the reality of the economic hardships come. And they're going to come hard. 2021, unfortunately, we won't, we won't be able to keep um, making up these funds to keep people at home. The reality will set in, taxes will go up, we will have to pay back the debt, and it's, it's going to be very, very difficult for people, very, very hard. And the thing no is, question. although we've been funding um, the, the people with, with furlough schemes, when it comes to go back to work, those businesses that they worked for before won't be there. So they won't be able to get yeah. jobs. So it's going to be, unfortunately, a very difficult time. That's why um, folks like myself are very, very encouraging the government to stop the lockdowns now. It's fantastic we have a vaccine that will help protect the elderly, but the lockdowns are having immense harms on the population, not only on mental health, but on other aspects too.
1: Doctor, I appreciate your voice on this, and I thank you for chatting with me.
0: Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. Dr. Mark Berber, who is uh, with Martin, uh, Markham Stovill Hospital and uh, also a professor at University of Toronto and Queen's University.
3: We were there to be able to advocate for Canada's interests, and I can tell you we will continue to be effective in advocating for Canada's interests with this new administration. Obviously, President Biden has uh, a lot of uh, similar priorities to this government's, to uh, Canadians, whether it's fighting climate change, whether it's uh, building back better and creating good jobs for, uh, for everyone. Uh, these are things that we're going to be able to work on closely with our uh, uh, nearest ally and closest friend.
1: While the prime minister is making it very, very clear that he's thrilled, tickled pink, fond of the new administration. But why? I get it. They love green and all things climate change. But, you know, for all the hysteria over Donald Trump's protectionist measures, Joe Biden's no better for this country. And since becoming president, he's actually made it very clear he, too, is not just an American first president, but he's already signed a number of bi-American executive orders imposing stringent new made-in-American rules With an added caveat that exceptions to his new rules will be very, very limited. And this matters to us here in Canada because we were able to get exemptions from some of these things. And now he says that all stops. Mark Warner is an international competition, trade, and investment lawyer. Good to have you, Mark. Nice to be here. So the measures which he signed on Monday, a, quote, made in America, um, uh, I guess, new law, he actually says there'll be an office attached to the White House, which will police the use of waivers. And these are exceptions that would allow Canadian contractors, manufacturers and suppliers um, to get access to very lucrative and essential, um, you know, procurement deals. It's a lot of money on the table. And, and how serious is he, do you think?
4: Well, I think he is serious. I mean, there's no question that you know. I think what people forgot over the last four four years or five years of Donald Trump is that the party of protectionism in the United States, trade protectionism, has more often than not been the Democrats. The the um, the innovation of Donald Trump was it was the first time in a long time that we'd seen that from a Republican president. Usually, this is sort of counterintuitive for most Canadians because most Canadians, I think, ideologically think that we have more in common with. uh, with the Democrats uh, politically, and then they're surprised to find out that on trade issues, our best friends are almost always Republicans. So it's not a surprise. Um, he was, uh, Biden was vice president for Barack Obama uh, when the Restructuring Act after the Great Recession uh, uh, came about. The Americans passed a great uh, a Restructuring Act with an infrastructure program, and Biden negotiated basically um, a bilateral agreement with Canada that gave us. Um, some exceptions to it. It's not quite the way people in Canada remember it. (laughs) I was was working in the Ontario government at the time as a legal director for economic development and trade. Canada had to make concessions that we had never made before. Um, You know, traditionally, the way this works is Americans, Canadians complain about by American. Americans say, well, sit down and talk to us about reciprocal opening of government procurement at the federal and provincial level. Canadians say, but we're so much smaller than you. <laughs> and Americans say, do you, want open, do you want to have reciprocal access to government government or not? And then we hem and off. So when it came to the Infrastructure Act under uh, Obama, you know, basically, Biden was tasked with getting that through Congress. He was also tasked with getting the bilateral agreement with Canada. And so Ontario and Quebec had to, for literally the first time in history, make concessions. And it was those concessions that allowed us to um, to at the provincial level to agree to things in the government procurement agreement, the WTO. And built into that agreement was like a, a mandate for the two countries to sit down and figure this out. <laughs> and it never went anywhere. It never, we never got to an agreement. And so the, the agreement lapsed. And then in the NAFTA, the new NAFTA negotiations mm-hmm. for Kuzma and the USMCA, um, again, this time, Trump came along with um, his US trade representative and said, I want to renegotiate government procurement. Christopher Freeland said, nope, we're not doing anything. And so there's nothing in the new NAFTA about government procurement. We rely exclusively on the very weak commitments that are in the WTO government procurement uh, agreement. So that's mm-hmm. kind of where we are. We're so, you know, I, I think there's a hope that Biden would negotiate an exception, some exceptions for Canada again. But I think the important thing for Canadians to remember is when he did it the last time round, he didn't just. Do it, you know, be out of a great favor because he loves maple sugar.
0: <laughs> yeah, you
4: know, he did it because Canada agreed to make concessions that no Canadian government had ever made before at both the federal right. and provincial level. And I imagine that those will be the tense discussions we'll have to have. I mean, for instance, to be concrete about it, you know, even with the European trade agreement, the CETA, you know, Hydro Quebec is pulled out of that. I mean, Hydro Quebec is probably the biggest source of government procurement in the province of Quebec. Infrastructure Ontario is pulled out for Ontario. And so the Americans look at that and say, well, do you seriously want to talk about government procurement? We'll talk to you, but you're going to have to put something on the table. So that's kind of what it means. So this is the first step. I didn't think there was anything in the executive order. Maybe I'm too jaded, but I didn't think there was anything all that unexpected in it. Um, You know, the, The couple offices created you could argue that the waiver processes have been kind of ad hoc. At least this will give people at least an understanding of how it's going to be conducted. So that might not be all bad. Um, you know, the real the real thing, I, the real shoe that has yet to drop will be Biden is going to come out with an infrastructure package in the next wow. weeks or months. And that is going to be the replay of the 2009. And that'll be where the action, I think, will really be. This is, as I called it earlier today to someone else, this is the amuse-bouche. <laughs> yeah this is just, it's just a, this is just a sweet the the, the, the palate a little bit to say something to his base that he did hear them in those key states that rallied to him by close margins in the election but really um the real action on government procurement uh, is still to come um the real sleeper in this agreement i guess was uh, in 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 a in the background or two that was released yesterday morning where basically the um where the president, uh, president Biden's administration reiterated something it said on the campaign trail, which was that every country should be basically allowed to um, use their tax dollars for the benefit of their own citizens. And sort of implied that perhaps he wanted to reopen the American commitments at the WTO in the government procurement agreement. Now, that, did, that language didn't track into the actual executive order, but the significance is that it repeats the, the sort of thing that we had heard from uh, the um, Trump administration before, and to the extent that the backstop to not having a government procurement chapter in the new NAFTA was the American WTO commitments, the fact that the Biden administration has so quickly signaled that they might want to rethink those, that's something we're going to have to watch in Canada.
1: Yeah, I mean, for all the, um, you know, the hail and, uh, you know, chaos of, of Trump, everyone was so offended by that. But if it's the politics you prefer, then you're not going to be offended by things that hurt hurt your country, I guess. It, whatever your politics are is going to determine, I guess, how you feel. And if it's Trump doing it, you'll hate him. And if it's Biden that you love, you're going to be OK with this. But the bottom line is the prime minister's made no secret. He's very pleased with this. But again, it, it's not good for our country. So I'm not sure how he's going to go to bat to make sure our best entr- interests are, are are protected. I mean, in Keystone, he basically rolled over.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's not good. And and. You know, realistically, there, there's two things going on here. One is he's going to have to get provinces, realistically, just as Stephen Harper had to line up Ontario and Quebec to make concessions in 2009, 2010. Um, if he's going to make any progress with Biden, he's going to have to, you know, make get concessions from provinces. That's never an easy file, as you know. Um, yeah. Secondly, our our own Canadian International Trade Tribunal, which hears cases on um, on government procurement challenges. You know, our own King in the International Trade Tribunal has said in the past that Canada was, the federal government was abusing the national security exceptions and applying mm-hmm. it to contracts where American, you know, tech companies were bidding on them. So that's an active file the Americans will be looking at as well. So there's a lot of stuff. It's not as simple as um, simply a matter of, well, well, you know, we don't like their Buy American. They're gonna, the Americans will come to the table and say, okay, let's have a conversation. And and that's always difficult because it's going to be a two way conversation.
1: Well, it should be. It'll probably be just I've only got about 30 seconds, Mark. But I wanted to ask you, the European Union, obviously looking at possibly blocking vaccine shipments to other countries, including Canada. um, They make it. uh, They own it. Uh, Can any can anyone stop? it? It's great that the prime minister called the presidents of these companies, but up to uh, isn't it up to the European uh, Union, uh, whether or not they allow these things to go in and out of the country?
4: Yeah, and normally, you know, normally you need an effort, particularly for pharmaceutical products, you need some kind of an export permit and an import permit. And if if there is an export prohibition of some kind, as opposed to just a monitoring and notification regime, um, I would imagine if you're Moderna or Pfizer slash BioNTech, you're going to have to follow that. And if, and if the companies don't like that, they'll have to go to court in, in, in within the European Union or within a member state to try to challenge it. That'll take forever. I don't know. I haven't seen the contracts. My guess is these actual contracts, um, if you were to look at them, we would see that they have what I, I would call something stronger than a best efforts clause for the companies to supply. But it wouldn't. there's probably no guaranteed uh, uh, supply or proportionate supply in the event of a shortage. So I, I suspect that um, all the countries involved, whether it's the Europeans and Canada, are overstating exactly what the companies have committed to. I think given... In the case of Moderna, for instance, you're talking about a company that's literally produced nothing mm-hmm. ever <laughs> before mm-hmm. now. Uh, if we're going to go from zero to hundreds of millions of doses, my guess is the contract's going to say we're going to do our best. <laughs> but... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jeez. All right. So we're screwed. Mark, on that note, um, thank you.
4: You're welcome. It's fun to have
1: That is uh, Mark Warner, International Competition, Trade and Investment Law. All right. I got I to say we're screwed. That's what, that's just what it is. You can join us live Monday through Friday starting 630 sharp here. Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.